my last episode about the 2020 U.S. congressional elections, I briefly mentioned Senator John Ossoff. Ossoff, who was sworn into the Senate on January 20th, 2021, alongside fellow Democrat Raphael Warnock, is the first Jewish senator from the state of Georgia. He is also the first Jewish senator from the Deep South since Democrat Benjamin Jonas of Louisiana, who was elected in 1879. Although Ossoff's Australian-born mother is a Christian, and Talmudic law states that a person can only be Jewish if their mother is, Ossoff's father is Jewish, and he even formally converted to Judaism as a teenager. Since the election of Pennsylvania Representative Louis Levin, a member of the Know Nothing Party, in 1845, Jewish people have had considerable success in the U.S. government's legislative branch. Currently, there are 27 Jewish members of the House of Representatives and 9 in the Senate, including Democrat Chuck Schumer of New York, the first Jewish Senate Majority Leader, and the most senior Jewish politician in American history. There have been hundreds of Jewish congresspersons over the course of U.S. history, but despite this success, John Ossoff and Benjamin Jonas are two of only three religiously Jewish senators ever from the Deep South. The remaining senator, who was also the first religiously Jewish senator in U.S. history, may perhaps have the most interesting story, but to talk about him, I should also discuss the success of Jewish Americans in another branch of the U.S. government. Despite the fact that there has never been a Jewish president or vice president of the United States, there have been many Jewish members of the president's executive cabinet. The highest ranking Jewish cabinet official ever was Republican Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who served under the administration of President Richard Nixon. However, President Joe Biden's nominee for Secretary of State, Democrat Tony Blinken, will soon hold this distinction alongside Kissinger. At the end of the Trump administration, there were three Jewish cabinet or cabinet-level officials, all of whom are Republicans. Secretary of the Treasury Steven Mnuchin, Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen, and Senior Advisor to the President Jared Kushner. The first Jewish cabinet official, Republican Secretary of Commerce Oscar Strauss, was appointed by President Theodore Roosevelt in 1906. However, while he didn't serve in the U.S. President's cabinet, the same man who served as the first Jewish senator also beat out Oscar Strauss as the first Jewish cabinet official in North American history by almost 50 years. Crazier still is the same man's relation to the third branch of the U.S. government, the judicial branch. There are currently two Jewish justices in the U.S. Supreme Court, Democrats Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan. The first Jewish Supreme Court Justice, Democrat Louis Brandeis, was appointed in 1916 by President Woodrow Wilson. However, while he didn't serve, the same man who was first Jewish U.S. congressperson and the first Jewish cabinet member in North America was also the first Jew to be nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
but his pioneership in all three branches of a democratic government was overshadowed by his decision to leave the United States for another nation. He played a major part in one of the most shameful practices in American history, and he helped to lead a belligerent nation in the bloodiest war in American history. I'm going to tell you all about him, right now, on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 28th episode of this podcast, and I'm so glad you've stuck around. Special thank you to Patreon subscriber SodakZak. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. Judah Philip Benjamin was born on August 6, 1811 in St. Croix of the Danish West Indies, which are today the U.S. Virgin Islands. At the time, the Danish West Indies were occupied by the United Kingdom during the Napoleonic Wars. Benjamin's parents were Sephardi Jewish shopkeepers from London who moved to St. Croix to expand their business. However, the islands came upon hard times, and in 1813, Benjamin and his family moved to Fayetteville, North Carolina. In 1821, they resettled in Charleston, South Carolina, which had the largest Jewish population in the U.S. at the time. A child prodigy, Benjamin enrolled at Yale University at the age of 14. In 1827, however, he left without finishing a degree. The reasons for this are disputed, but it's widely believed that he was expelled for gambling. Benjamin then moved to New Orleans, Louisiana, and began to study law. Since Louisiana's Bar Association required all prospective lawyers to know French, he began to tutor French Creoles in English on the condition that they teach him French in return. One of his students, a Catholic French Creole named Natalie Bauchet de Saint-Martin, would later become his wife. In 1832, Benjamin was admitted to the Louisiana State Bar at the age of 21. Natalie Benjamin was a slave owner, and while Judah Benjamin did not personally own slaves, he was not opposed to the legality of the practice. After the two had a daughter together, Benjamin and his wife separated, and his wife and daughter moved to Paris. There are many theories for why this happened. Some believe that their religious differences caused their split, others believe that Natalie Benjamin was involved in an extramarital affair, and many people even believe that Benjamin himself was actually gay. Whatever the case, Benjamin used his separation from his wife as an excuse to focus on his legal career. Perhaps the most notable case he argued was that of the slave ship Creole. In 1841, while being transported from Virginia to Louisiana, the slaves aboard the Creole revolted, seized the ship, and sailed to the British-controlled Bahamas where slavery was abolished. 
When the owners of the slaves sued their insurance company, Benjamin successfully defended the insurers, saying that the slave owners brought the revolt on themselves by holding the slaves in poor living conditions. He even stated in his defense, quote, What is a slave? He is a human being. He has feelings and passion and intellect. His heart, like the heart of the white man, swells with love, burns with jealousy, aches with sorrow, pines under restraint and discomfort, boils with revenge, and ever cherishes the desire for liberty. In 1842, Judah Benjamin was elected to the Louisiana House of Representatives as a member of the Whig Party. Shortly thereafter, Benjamin and his friend established a sugarcane plantation just outside New Orleans, which they named Bell Chassis. Benjamin hopelessly tried to win his wife back by expanding and beautifying the plantation, but these efforts were unsuccessful. At its peak, Bell Chassis housed 140 slaves, and Benjamin gained a reputation as a very humane slave owner. In 1850, Benjamin began to enter a deep depression after two successive deaths that heavily affected him. Earlier that year, Benjamin's mother died of yellow fever, and soon after, President Zachary Taylor, a close friend and political ally of Benjamin, died of gastroenteritis. In 1851, he resigned from his state house seat, and he briefly moved to Paris to see his daughter. Despite his hiatus, the Whig Party nominated him to run for a Louisiana State Senate seat, and he was elected in absentia. In, after Benjamin returned to Louisiana, outgoing Whig President Millard Fillmore nominated him to the U.S. Supreme Court. However, Benjamin declined to serve, instead opting to run for one of Louisiana's seats in the U.S. Senate. In 1853, Benjamin defeated Democratic incumbent Solomon Downs, and he became a U.S. Senator. Although David Levy Uli, who was of Sephardi Jewish descent, was elected to the Senate from Florida in 1845, he had previously converted to Episcopalianism, making Benjamin the first practicing Jew in the Senate. He became a leading advocate for the continuation of slavery, although he specifically stated that he did not see blacks as inferior to whites. His main argument was that slaves on plantations were actually treated better than they would be in regular southern society. Now, as he was supposedly a very humane slave owner, that may well have been true for him, but that wasn't really the case for most enslaved persons. He also feared that emancipating slaves would cripple the economy and that it would potentially lead to a massacre of white citizens like what happened in the Haitian Revolution. In 1856, the Whig Party dissolved and Benjamin joined the Democratic Party as he did not support the Republican Party's abolitionist platform. But in 1860, he opposed Democratic presidential candidate Stephen Douglas's opposition to the Supreme Court's pro-slavery decision in Dred Scott v. Sanford. Ironically, Benjamin was more supportive of Republican candidate Abraham Lincoln, a staunch abolitionist, because Benjamin saw him as at least not a hypocrite, unlike Douglas. Ultimately, though, Benjamin would join Mississippi Senator Jefferson Davis in breaking with the Democratic Party to support Southern Democrat John Breckinridge over Douglas. 
On January 26, 1861, Louisiana voted to secede from the U.S. and joined the Confederate States of America. Nine days later, Benjamin resigned and fled D.C. for New Orleans. On February 18, 1861, the Provisional Confederate States Congress met in Montgomery, Alabama, where they chose Jefferson Davis as Provisional President. Seven days later, Davis appointed Judah Benjamin as Attorney General of the Confederacy. This made Benjamin the first Jewish cabinet official ever in North America. Shortly afterwards, Virginia joined the Confederacy, and the capital was moved from Montgomery to Richmond. As Attorney General, Benjamin felt bored and unfulfilled in his position. In spite of this, he always remained loyal to President Davis. When Confederate Secretary of War Leroy Walker resigned in November of 1861 due to tensions he had with Davis, Benjamin was appointed to replace him. It then became his job to tackle a crucial issue that plagued the Confederacy, obtaining guns and ammunition for soldiers in an almost exclusively agrarian nation. To achieve this, he decided to take advantage of the resources the Confederacy had. Most importantly, he stressed the idea of King Cotton, a belief that cotton was such a valuable raw material that anyone who possessed it could control the global market. Benjamin advised Davis to sell large amounts of cotton to the United Kingdom in exchange for weapons and other supplies. Benjamin also sought financial help from Confederate civilians, and while many of them held prejudices against him due to his religion, he was able to successfully use these prejudices to take advantage of what he called the Southerner's instinctive respect for the Jewish mind with a brilliant performance. However, Benjamin frequently sparred with Confederate generals, particularly Pierre Beauregard and Stonewall Jackson. Jackson was even so frustrated with Benjamin at one point that he almost resigned. Benjamin also faced criticism for his opposition to artillery units, which he believed were inhumane in warfare. In 1862, the Confederacy saw two crucial losses under Benjamin's watch. General Ambrose Burnside defeated the Confederates at the Battle of Roanoke Island, while General and future New Jersey Governor George McClellan defeated them at the Battle of Antietam. Benjamin was once again blamed for these losses, but later on, Jefferson Davis would admit that the armed shortages at these battles were actually his own fault, and that he and Benjamin agreed to have Benjamin act as a scapegoat. The close friendship between these two angered many Confederate generals who referred to Benjamin as, quote, Mr. Davis's pet Jew. General Henry Wise, who was captured at the Battle of Roanoke Island, said that his loss was the fault of, quote, the fat Jew sitting at his desk. In spite of a Confederate congressional committee finding that Benjamin was to blame for the loss at Roanoke, Davis appointed him as Confederate Secretary of State in March of 1862, following the resignation of Robert Hunter.
As Confederate Secretary of State, Judah Benjamin continued to make decisions based on the power of King Cotton. Prior to the Civil War, most European nations imported almost all of their cotton from the southern U.S., so naturally, Benjamin attempted to use this leverage to get European nations to recognize the Confederacy. As a lifetime Louisiana resident and an ex-husband of a Creole woman, his logical first step was France. In addition to holding much prestige in the international community, French recognition would have been crucial for the Confederacy, as the French had very much control over the Confederacy's neighbor to the south, Mexico. When Benjamin contacted Emperor Napoleon III of France, the Emperor seemed to react positively. However, he was still wary about supporting such a recently formed nation, especially one that was fighting for its own existence. Napoleon III told Benjamin that France would only recognize the Confederacy if the British government did first. When Benjamin asked Queen Victoria for recognition, the proposition wasn't received well. The British had previously abolished the slave trade in 1807, and many Brits considered the Confederacy's connection to the practice unacceptable. In addition, the British wanted to remain in the good graces of the U.S. as they became dependent on trade with the U.S. following a drought in 1862. But the nail in the coffin for the CSA was the British acquisition of India and their trade agreement with Egypt. These two events provided new sources of cotton for the UK, and negotiations between the Confederacy and the UK fell apart. By 1865, the lack of international recognition had taken its toll on the Confederacy. Following Union General William T. Sherman's capture of Atlanta, the Confederacy was desperate for help. Benjamin suggested a unique idea to solve this, emancipating certain slaves and drafting them into the Confederate Army. A bill to do this was introduced to the Confederate Congress, but it was too little, too late. By April of 1865, Benjamin had fled to London on a merchant ship. Less than a month later, the Confederate States of America collapsed. In London, Benjamin became a barrister, receiving great fame for his brilliant legal skills. He suffered from obesity and diabetes for most of his life, and after he moved from London to Paris, Benjamin's health issues began to catch up to him. On May 6, 1884, Judah Benjamin died in Paris from a heart attack. Shortly before his death, his ex-wife Natalie had the last rites administered to him. Since his tenure in the Confederate government, Benjamin has mostly been a forgotten figure. Many Neo-Confederates previously chose not to associate with him due to his religion, while many Jewish Americans chose not to associate with him due to his work with the Confederacy. Despite this, Benjamin still deserves plenty of recognition for his contribution to Jewish Americans in the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of the North American government. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. This episode's subject may be one of the craziest I've ever researched. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash historiaobscura slash message. 
feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.